Philippians chapter 2, once again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, who, that is our Lord Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is that famous passage. Some people call it the kenosis passage because of that Greek verb, kenosis. He emptied himself. And this morning I tried to start trying to analyze what's going on in the passage and probably said more what it can't mean than what it does mean. I don't remember the ratio there. But I did... I do remember saying that there's been a lot of fuzziness in the last 150 years, especially on this text. So much so that a movement, a Christological movement called canoticism, grew out of this fuzziness, thanks to the Germans in the 19th century. Um, and then a, a modified form of canoticism made it into American evangelicalism and the Reformed community, where you get statements like this, uh, Jesus emptied himself. That is, he was still God, but he chose not to use all of his divine prerogatives. They were really his, but they became uh, latent. They were not acting, but they were potential. So that, um, for instance, somebody would say, during the incarnate state, during the state of humiliation, the Son of God uh, was ignorant of some things. In other words, according to his divine nature, he ceased exercising the prerogative of omniscience. Some people hold that. They predicate ignorance of the incarnate Son of God according to his human and divine natures during the state of humiliation. It's an ancient heresy, by the way. But fuzziness came in, and so a modified form of canoticism developed and grew, and first it started you know, with the full-blown canoticism where Jesus threw off divinity and in come, becoming a man. Uh, and then uh, somehow, some way, uh, sometimes I know how this happens, but... Uh, I'm not sure how it made it into the commentary. So if you're living in the commentary bubble like I was from 1990 or so to about 1995 or 6, this is the language you use. The kenosis is something that the Son of God took off or ceased doing as God, though he is God and always remained divine, he chose not to exercise certain prerogatives, okay? Um, I almost said when I was a kid, but yeah, when I was a theological kid, that was the talk of the community. 
the Christian community, the evangelical, American evangelical community. Um, we're trying to sharpen our language and our thoughts, though, in, in the last 15, 20 years. Many good books on this subject have, have, have come out. So I took the view that that form of God and equal with God means he's God. If you're equal with God and you're in the form of God, you're God, okay? And then I took the view that uh, form of a servant means you're man. Because if you're a form of a servant, if you're the form of God and equal with God, then you're a form of a servant, you're equal with man, you're very man. Very God, very man. I also took the view that... Um, says he's obedient, and his obedience is according to his human nature, right? Um, and that is for us and for our salvation. See that? He obeyed to the point of death. He didn't just obey in dying. His whole life was a life of obedience. Why does he, according to his human nature, have to have a whole life of obedience? Because we don't. Okay, so he's living for us, procuring righteous standing in relation to the law of God for us. And he's also living unto death. His obedience was an, an unto death obedience, right? His death was obedience itself, but the steps to get there were obedience. So we have the form of God, form of, of a servant, the, the Augustinian, you know, partitive thing going on here in Philippians. The issue is that Kenosis, but he emptied himself. Remember I said in the first hour, some people are looking for the content of the emptying. What did he throw off? What did he empty himself of? And then I quoted somebody, a contemporary, that says, the text doesn't say, identify that which he threw off. It just says, but he emptied himself by taking. Okay, so the taking of flesh is the content of emptying. That's what emptying for the Son of God means. He, being rich, became poor all the while being rich. He didn't throw off his divinity in order to become humanity, become man. He didn't tinker with his divinity in order to become man, because a tinkered with divinity is not God, and therefore, if he tinkered with himself and not de-godified himself, or whatever the word would be, we don't have a real incarnation of God. The only way we can have God become man is if the divine nature continues to be what it is, divinity. Because if it doesn't continue to be what it is eternally, then we don't have God who has become man. Matter of fact, I have a... I don't know if I do. Let's see if I do. I don't. I had a wonderful quote um, on that. Very issue right there, but it's okay. So this morning, kept diving in there, trying to keep the distinguishing between the divine nature and the human nature and the one person, if you forget anything, remember, Christian doctrine holds one person, the Son of God, two natures, united, that's the hypostatic union, 
Within the one person, these two natures are mysteriously united without one becoming the other, one swallowing the other up, uh, half God, half man, mongrel kind of thing. No confusion. So we're carefully distinguishing. And then I, I mentioned Matthew Poole because he says that he, the son, did not really forego anything of his divine glory, being the son of God still, equal to his father in power and glory. So he talks about here uh, the non-foregoing of divine glory, uh, weight, uh, the weight of the divine nature, the divinity. Here's what somebody else says. Christ's divine glory was generally hidden under the veil of the flesh in his humble human sojourn. Remember the, the line from the hymn, veiled in flesh the Godhead seat. Now what we're dealing with is this. What do these men mean by veiled? How can the brilliance of divine glory be veiled? Did something happen to the divine glory that veiled it? Let's keep, keep reading this quote. We'll get to this. Indeed, this seems to be implied by the fact that after the son's obedience to death, the father outwardly exhibits the divine glory of the son. Philippians 2, 9 through following. Yet the transition from temporary veiling to display of the glory does not involve a change in the son's divinity. So here's what he's saying. During his incarnate state before the resurrection, there seems to be some sort of veiling of the glory of this person by virtue of the flesh, but it's not that something happened to the divinity. It's the flesh that's the veil. Because at the resurrection, then he's acknowledged for who he is, and certainly in heaven as he ascended into heaven. He said, in fact, it would be fitting for the Father to grant an outward manifestation of the Son's divine glory only if the Son always was and remained the true God. For this glory is that of Yahweh himself, the only God and the unchanging God before whom every knee must bow. So let's think about this kenosis. He emptied himself and this veiling of divine glory. Some people say this. The content of the emptying is not the mere assumption of human flesh, but it is the setting aside of divine glory. Now, if it's divine glory, then it's the Son doing something to his divine nature. We're not talking about human glory, you know, the glory of, that comes when you win the World Series or something like that. We're talking about the sheer brilliance of divinity, the, the awness of it. Some people say, even in our day, otherwise well-intended people, not, they don't mean bad by this, they say the, the Son's divine glory is something that he set aside, still his, but he set it aside for a time, and then he gets it back. 
So we have this voluntary tinkering by the Son, tinkering with the divine nature itself. It doesn't manifest its brilliance to creatures. It gets veiled. And the veiling is, I agree not to show off. And then the assumption of flesh. There's a lot of problems with that, but I don't think it is the best way to think about this. For instance, if you were in glory or one of the elect angels before the incarnation, uh, would there be any sense in which you would see the Son's glory? Remember John 12? We're not there yet, but we're going to get there. Isaiah saw whose glory in Isaiah 6? The Son's glory. That doesn't mean the Father doesn't have the same glory and the Spirit doesn't have the same glory, but just it's aiming at just the Son. Isaiah saw the Son's glory, so he, he recognized um, the glory of God in the Son of God prior to the Incarnation. Okay? Um, and, and let's say... Uh, we're an elect angel, and so we're up in glory. We're in heaven, and um, the, the in fullness of time comes. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Are we going to go, wow, the second person of the Trinity had glory, was glorious, will have glory, will be glorious, but chose to veil himself, that is, not show off his glory, during his incarnate and pre-resurrected state. You think elect angels are going, had glory, will have glory, didn't have glory. I don't think that's the best way to do the veil thing either. The veiling is not something that happens to God or in God. You know who the veiling happens with and to? Creatures. If you lived in the first century... Uh, and Mary gave birth to the incarnate Son of God, you wouldn't go, wow, look at, the, look at that hypostatic, hypostatically united infant. Just like if you saw the resurrection, you wouldn't say, wow, look at the first fruits of a great eschatological harvest come. If you saw the death of Christ, saw him dying on the cross, you wouldn't say, look at the imputation of the guilt of my sin on the incarnate Son of God. You wouldn't say that. They're not self-interpreting acts. You know, we don't have the right to say, you know, the cross is a symbol uh, of God's, that God's for us. It's God's plus sign. You know, I had a friend in seminary. I actually saw him. I hadn't seen him in 30 years. And I saw him this year, and I said, I remember you saying that. He was born, raised in a liberal Presbyterian church. That cross out there is God's sign that he's for us. It's a plus sign. It's like, no, the, the cross is a sign that signifies the implement on which the incarnate Son of God died under the wrath of God for, for, his, for his wayward sheep. You know, um, so I don't think it's right to, to, you know, to do this angelic thing. Uh, I'm kind of kidding. We can't get into the angels' minds. But it would have been like that. Wow, the second person of the Trinity just did something to his own divinity so that he loses glory and then he's going to get it back uh, later. I don't think that's the best way to do it. Uh, one man says, the incarnation was the veiling of the Son's deity, not its subtraction or loss. 
right? And I'm going to say, not its tinkering with either. The incarnation brought a real concealment, but not an abdication of the eternal son's divine majesty. So the non-recognition of the son's glory during his state of humiliation is something that happened upon the earth by men, not by virtue of something that happened in or to God. Turretin, our friend, the one that says we distinguish quite often. Listen to him. He says this. He, uh, he's talking about this veiling thing. In respect of state and comparatively, because he concealed the divine glory under the veil of the flesh, and as it were, laid it aside, he can even say that, as it were, laid it aside, not by putting off what he was, but by assuming what he was not. Okay, so the, the change is not in the divinity of the Son, it's in the creature side of things, right? So when Ligonier Ministries asks that question, uh, was Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ uh, created or something like that? I want to say that's, that's not a good question because if we're thinking uh, Chalcedonianly and biblically, we're going to say, well, according to his divine nature, of course he wasn't created. But according to his human nature, he is a creature. But when he empties himself by taking, creatures on the earth saw a man, saw a body, assumed it had a soul. They didn't, you know, as somebody says, you know, Jesus had, didn't have a, the glow thing going on. So they go, oh, this is God incarnate. Matter of fact, some people thought he was like a low life loser. Isaiah even says, you know, nobody thought much of you. All the pictures of the ancient Near Eastern bearded fellows I've seen all look like a, a little effeminate. I don't know what our Lord looked like. He hasn't left us a portrait. Um, but I know this much. There, there wasn't like some Shekinah glory following him around, so people go, oh, the incarnate, the incarnate Son of God. Okay, they, Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, come over here, disciples. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be raised on the third day. God forbid it, Lord. I get the incarnation, okay, but I don't understand your death. So you can do the one thing, but you can't do the other. You know, that, that, that was Peter. But that has to be revealed to us, okay? So you, you, if we're there in the first century, you don't just conclude from seeing Jesus that this incarnation has occurred. He has to tell us. God has to reveal that to us in words, either audible through the lips of our Lord when he was on the earth, or his written word, and he has told us that. But even on top of that, we need that light of the Spirit in our soul to, uh, to acknowledge the truth of those things. 
So, so this veiling thing, we sing about veiling. So I wanted to work through the veiling thing. God cannot be emptied by diminu- diminution of glory, but by its concealment. That's uh, by its hiding, by its veiling. Not in the sight of God intrinsically, but extrinsically as to men. That's Turin again. See what he's doing there? He's carefully qualifying himself. He says, look... God can't be emptied by a diminution of glory. He can't diminish his glory. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit just are the glorious God that they are. They can't be diminuted. That's the word. And he says, whatever it is, concealment, uh, hiding, veiling, those are synonyms throughout the history of the church. Uh, this isn't happening intrinsically in God, in the sight of God, he says, but extrinsically as to men. It's, the veiling isn't the tinkering by the Son, tinkering with the divine nature. The veiling is the human nature assumed Creatures not being able to look at him and conclude, incarnate Son of God, glorious as the Father is, glorious as the Spirit is. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, The Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I read that earlier, but hopefully it's sticking in. The hymn writer, he got it right. Doesn't answer all our questions necessarily, but it helps us drill down hopefully a little more into the, uh, the marrow of the doctrine, as the old writer said. Here's another quote I, I want to share with you just to help you with this Philippians kenosis thing. The divine is not changed into the human, nor accommodated to the human. See what he just said? Okay, so we have the human nature, we have the divine nature. The divine nature is not changed into the human nature. That's one thing. Nor accommodated to the human. Okay, God doesn't tinker with his divine nature in order to become incarnate, nor is the human transmuted into the divine. No conversion. The divine and human do not coalesce so as to form a third. No composition. He's using the language of the Westminster Confession. Neither are the natures mixed. No confusion. That's very creedal, comes from Chalcedon, Chalcedon, 451. It's very confessional, Westminster Confession, and our confession as well. So the divine is not accommodated to the human. The divine nature does not accommodate itself uh, in order for the human nature to be really human or something like that. The divine nature is not tinkered with. 
So once you do tinkering with the divine nature, you got a mutable God. you got a changing God. We can't do that. No can he do. Okay, it ends up being the H word. Heretical. By the way, people that teach this modified view of, of, uh, of canonicism, are they, are they damned heretics? Kind of harsh language, huh? The, the answer is no. Uh, for the, for, a, for a, an ecclesiastical body to address somebody who's teaching heresy, confront them, and for that person to stubbornly not repent of their false view uh, on a really important issue like this, and then they pronounce the person a heretic, that's one thing. But just to say heretical things, all of us have. Probably most of us have sang heretical songs, too. Matter of fact, I think there's a heretical line in one of our hymns, Dolzell, Dolzell pointed it out. It's not necessarily heretical. He left his father's throne above. You know what comes into your mind is relocation. Physically, the Son of God left a place and then came to another place. But that's divine sending is a, that's another sermon or a series of sermons. We can't think of it that way. And the word became, remember I said last week, okay, how could the, he's God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Nothing that is, all things that are coming to being have come into being. Nothing is coming to being that is coming to being apart from him. He's the creator and the word became flesh. If he's God, full strength, Old Testament God, where can we go to hide from him? Nowhere. Psalm 139, I think it is. So if he's full strength God, then he's omnipresent, right? How can he become flesh? He's already there. How can he become present in flesh if he's God? Um, He assumes the nature, and so he becomes present where where he is already present, but in a new mode of presence, a creaturely mode to save us. That's what I said last week, something like that. So he left his father's throne above. When you sing that, don't be too wooden and literal in your interpretive uh, understanding of that. Wow, Jesus was up there on a throne with the Father, and then he said, Father, I'll, I'll see you when I'm done. And then he left, and he came to earth like a superhero kind of thing. It's actually stranger than that and more glorious than that as well. The divine is not accommodated to the human. So the veiling, then, is something that happens uh, in the theater of man's consciousness and man's contemplating the incarnate uh, Christ according to his humanity, they're not able to see that this person indeed is both God and man. And so in that sense, the person's glory is veiled through by virtue of the flesh. Well, hopefully that helps us to worship Christ better and serve him and love him. And uh, I'll, I'll pray and then we'll sing and pass out the the bread. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for hard texts, even like this. He emptied himself statement in Philippians 2.7. We ask that you would scrub our thinking of any um, wrong thoughts when it comes to these things and build us up and make us 
stronger in our resolve to understand these things so that we can both defend and proclaim this mysterious person, the Son of God, God and man. One person, two natures. For us, for our salvation. And help us now to obey as we take the supper together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.